So a full day of practice, and probably 50% of you have tried to figure out a way out of here and packed your bags at least mentally many times, <clears throat> and yet you're still here, or at least what I, who I see is still here. I don't know how many people actually escaped. But it's very rewarding to go through experiences like this where you really feel like you're on your edge and you can't take any more. And then there's some resilience or some uh, strength that comes and suddenly uh, you're able to go through it. Perhaps looking reflectively backward, you can't understand how you were able to go through it, but you did. And you grow through having been able to go through it. There's a way that the next time that or some situation or some experience that comes that seems, even seems more daunting, the confidence has a momentum to it. And the uh, staying power of the practice. So I really encourage all of you uh, to um, stick with it. Stick with it. Especially I'm speaking to those who are new, who haven't perhaps had the first wave of that confidence building. Uh, It's extraordinary how it builds upon itself to the point where at some point, come what may, let it just let it enough protection, enough defenses, that's it. Come what may. Let it come. And when we, it's not from some kind of macho uh, energy that that sentence comes, it comes from a confidence, a confidence and a steadfastness that says, this can be handled. And I want to give each of you some sense of that and how to be able to cultivate that, how to be able to enrich yourself within that confidence. Perhaps the first lesson in building confidence in that way is knowing the difference between an experience directly... um, directly confronted, and thinking about an experience. This seems to be so obvious, and, but it isn't that obvious. It's one of the perhaps toughest lessons to learn in one's training. The difference between even being on the breath in direct contact, free of thought, and the subtle interludes of being on the breath with thought and confusing the difference between being on the breath directly and the thought that's associated with it. It's not a given. And perhaps much of Dharma is about understanding that difference. So when we encourage you to directly participate in the breath, the experience of breath. And as the uh, breath 
vanishes and you're lost in thought, that moment in which you, are, you awaken from the thought, in which awakening happens from the thought, your willingness to dissipate the thoughts that you're going to reconnect the breath to, those thoughts of self, often self-demoralizing thoughts, the loss of confidence, the sense of, of personal failure, that, those, have to, those have to be eliminated before you go back to the breath, or you'll bring those, the attitude from those thoughts to the breath. And that will determine how it is that you maintain your contact with the breath. And that will interfere with what the breath, the purity of the scene of the breath. So I just, I want to uh, encourage, no matter how deeply practiced you feel you are, to look deeper into the difference between awareness, awareness, and thinking. And tonight I want to uh, talk about uh, different aspects of that uh, pra- practice, and I want to um, I want to include kind of an overall umbrella of how to work with experience as they arise, regardless of what type of experience arises. And if we can have something to fall back on, I have found it in my practice to be very helpful to have kind of a you know, okay, well, this is getting too hard. What, what's the, you know, what do I do here? What, where do I, what's, the, what's my uh, orientation to this experience at hand? How do I make direct contact? Um, so I want to uh, talk about three aspects of practice that feel, and when, our, when I speak about them, they seem very simple and very fundamental, but really hold the essence of one's orientation to all of Dharma. And that is the words relax, observe, and allow. Now, those words are extremely simple. They don't contain relax, observe, and allow. They don't contain a lot of doing, a lot of effort. They don't contain a prescription for a great deal of maneuvering, do they? In fact, they're the essence of simplicity. They boil the practice down to just the fundamental ingredients of a perspective of an alignment with life that I more and more appreciate. Uh, They don't give us a lot. And intentionally, I want this talk to be um, not complex, very simple, I was once in uh, Watsun Mok, which was the monastery where I was staying as a monk uh, in the very early 80s. And a Tibetan practitioner uh, was visiting West, uh, West... No, he was a Tibetan, but he could speak English. And he, uh, we had tea together, and he asked me what my practice was. But before I told him, I said, well, tell me about your practice, because I'm really interested. You seem to be very engaged all day long. And so he went through a litany of all the things that he did in his practice, which was considerable. He did prostrations, and he did mantras, and he did visualizations, and he did, you know, uh, 
offerings to deities. And he went on for many, many, many minutes, probably an hour, telling me about all the different forms of his practice. Then he asked me what I did. And I was a little bit, uh, I wanted to change the subject. <laughs> because I felt it was, my answer, I don't know. It, well, I answered, I finally said, I just try to see things as they are. And he was not impressed. <laughs> and uh, I felt a, a little bit envious of all the things he could claim he was doing and that I couldn't claim I was doing at all. But in the meantime, since then, uh, there has been a deep appreciation for the simplicity of the practice. It just doesn't complicate. It doesn't make... And in this no way is a disparaging comment about Tibetan practice, which I don't understand, so I really plead ignorance. But I do understand this one. And the simplicity of just, just that, just seeing, the simplicity of just seeing, adding nothing, just seeing, and the willingness to go wherever that scene takes us. I just, I, when I, uh, even I speak about it now, but uh, it just, it, there's a, such a deep resonance within that. You know, even in science, they're sort of, they're sort of um, distilling all of this down to very fundamental particles. And even within particles, there are the simplicity of, theories like string string theory and just it's coming becoming very simple just energy in motion and the distillation of all of the multiplicity of things down to this very very basic fundamental movement of energy is paralleled by our own observation our own spiritual quest there's a deep way that all of this boils down to a very simple and straightforward scene. And it's that straightforward scene that's alignment which reveals everything that doesn't require multiple practices for most people. Now, multiple practices are fine if your temperament is such that those resonate and they for many people who have difficulty in some area, need a balancing practice to offset the tendency to lean in that direction, to counter-lean in another. And that's what skillful means is all about. But I think we forget that the point is to boil this thing all down. Even two is one too many. We're trying to get to the basics here. What's the isness of life? Not how can I maneuver through it, not how I can be comfortable in it, not how I can arrange myself with it so that I can have a good job. And, but what, what is it? What is it? How does it get distilled? Where, where is it? Where, what are the... And so the practices we use, if this is your motivation, which I'm not assuming, but from which I would like to speak tonight, that if your assumption is one in which you want to see the basics, in which you want to get to the 
the bedrock, you might say, of what experience is, what do we have to, what, what practice allows us to come to that clarity, to, to see? And so I have, I have um, taken or um, oriented my uh, teaching to just these three words, really. But I would like to explain these three words because they're not, they're simply stated but totally misunderstood. So a, a brief explanation, I think, of what relaxation means. We've been using it the entire retreat. What does it mean? What does it mean when we suggest relaxation? Relaxation. Well, the near enemy of relaxation is indulgence. Mostly we couple the word relaxation with sort of comfort, soothing, being soothed, or being losing the context of the experience and sort of just letting things slip away in a kind of free-fall energy release. But relaxation certainly does mean the release of tension, the release of, of resistance, But in so doing, we have to understand that we are built from resistance. The sense of me is built from the way I object to life, from my arguments with life. It is built upon my defenses to life. And so when we suggest relaxation, what that implies is the loss of your defenses. Now that's something... Because having no tension within oneself, we are not resisting anything by, very de- by definition. And when you're not resisting anything, then everything comes in. Everything is allowed in. The way we keep things outside of ourselves is resisting the experience of that and protecting ourselves from it. And much of our life has been a buildup of how we defend ourselves from this situation, around that situation, or around that person. So relaxation is really defenselessness. And when you think of it like that, you can say, whoa, this is, a different, this is different here. This is, I'm not so sure about this anymore. This may not be as easy as it's implied. Relaxation sounds great. So it's like, sounds like what you do on vacation. We're asking for something far more from you than a hot tub experience. And we couple relaxation with alertness, not indulgence. It's not the loss of attention. It's not the giving ourselves over to comfort. It's crisp awareness, crisp awareness. You see, that's, that's, the, that's the aliveness. And the more we release the need to resist, the more that crisp awareness arises from the lack of resistance. And you'll find, even in the course of this weekend perhaps, that when you stop 
fighting a particular experience, perhaps physical pain or some mental emotion, when there is the willingness to release the resistance, the experience of letting go, so to speak, there's this um, arising at the same time of a, of, a, of a vitality of spirit and a uniformity of consciousness and a hypersensitivity within that consciousness. You know, I, I teach a teen class, <clears throat> and uh, teens are, are challenges in themselves, but sometimes they are amazing in their ability to understand the simplicity of Dharma. So I was talking about relaxation, and the next week after I spoke about it, one of the teens, who was 15, and she uh, lived in a house that was pretty... Uh, tumultuous. There was a lot of drama going on and a lot of argument. And uh, she was saying that she sees her role ever more clear in that argument within the family and how the family comes to a certain point. Uh, And so the whole uh, crescendo of the family was beginning to rise. And she said to herself, uh, I'm going to relax now. She said this internally. And so she just... And she said the whole thing deflated around her ability to relax within it. And suddenly everybody... It was as if everybody was oriented to her compass. And it became diffused immediately. And she said, I now know the power of relaxation. See, we have to uncouple relaxation with sleep. We have learned that when we relax, it means that we kind of tune out, that it's time to go to sleep. One of the problems in setting up an artificial environment like this is that it's very similar to the conditions of sleep. There's no noise. The lights are low. There's no conversation, no stimulation, and your eyes are closed. And you're not in movement. We have learned to sleep under those conditions. And so the mind, because it feels those conditions, it says, oh, it's time to go to sleep. And so much of what is going on in terms of this head bobbing isn't actual fatigue. It certainly can be. Much of it is just the conditioning of relearning those conditions so that we can stay awake. We have to now pair relaxation with alert attention rather than the loss of attention. Relaxation does something else that's extremely important. It sets us up in a receptive mode. Now, when you think of the words relax, observe, and allow, those are the conditions for learning. We can't be tight or tense. We can't be uh, anxious or we don't learning. We're, we're the very uh, um, tension itself prohibits the influx, the, 
willing to receive what it is that we need to learn. And dharma, it's that willing to take life in rather than to um, exert will and influence upon. It's the willingness to receive rather than to, uh, uh, to willfully control. So relax, observe, and allow set us up so that we are in a receptive mode to life. If you think of what learning requires, it requires receiving, right? So think of these words as setting us up so that we have the attitude of receiving or learning about life. And that is the correct orientation of dharma. Dharma is not about how you influence life. It's about your willingness to receive and understand what life is. I think it was uh, Shanti David that said, we are not here we are not here to influence the world, we're here to learn from it, or something to that effect. Not many of us approach our life in that direction. Not many of us understand that the influence that we usually uh, spread upon our existence is not really the essence of what life is about. It's about orienting our proper relationship to life, getting a sense of where we fit in to life, learning who we are in relationship to life, and then letting life express itself uniquely through our mind and body's experience from that orientation. So that sense of receptivity, relaxation prepares us to relax, to be at ease, to receive So that takes us into the next of the three words, which is observe, relax, observe. Now, um, it's very interesting when the bell rings here. Because when we're not relaxed or observing, we're, we're getting up our energy, gathering our energy to get out of the hall so that we can leave our sitting behind and go whatever we're going to do next. And so we're waiting for the bell and the meaning of the bell uh, to allow us to unleash us. It's like the corral gate opening. It's like somebody's let go of the bridle and we can now run free. And we miss the sound of the bell for what it is. You see, there are two things happening. There is the meaning, and then there is the observation. The meaning is just the content, what it means to me and the next thing I can do. The observation is the holding of the thing itself. And those two are, on, are, not, are perpendicular to one another. The meaning takes us into the meaning of our life, the meaning of our story, my hurt knees, and I need to get out of this hall. The observation eliminates the story, and we just hear the sound. And every aspect of life holds those perpendicular components, those two axes. It holds a meaning, 
and it holds its observation, just what observation reveals it to be. In meditation, we are not denying the meaning, but when we only know the sound of the bell to mean the end of the sitting, we miss everything that really enriches us. Is it possible to hear the sound of the bell as the sound and also know that it's the end of the sitting? In walking meditation, is it possible, as Narayan was speaking about it so nicely today, to take a step that does not mean that the step goes anywhere, which is the meaning. I'm not headed to the store, heading to the store to buy a loaf of bread. I'm not, this movement has no meaning in terms of where it is taking me. It has meaning in terms of the experience of the movement. And you will find that you'll get very bored with your walking if it if you are looking for your walking to mean something. Because it means nothing. And you'll become equally as interested as you were bored when you allow it to mean nothing, but, it's, but to, for it to be experienced fully for what it is. And when our life comes back together, so that we can walk to the store. We know where we're going. We don't lose the goal of what we're doing or why we're doing it. But the whole thing opens up, opens up, expands outward because we don't capture it only to mean I'm going to the store. That's where observation comes in. That's the split between thinking and observing, because the near enemy of observation is opinionation, is trying to implant a meaning in the observation. And we want to hold the observation for being what it is and know the meaning to be separate from the observation of it. That's why I say the hardest lesson to learn is the difference between direct contact and thought about. It's not an easy lesson, and it keeps becoming, it becomes more and more subtle in how it imparts its lesson to us as we deepen our practice. The way that this practice is often spoken about is bare attention, B-A-R-E, where we add nothing to attention, where attention stands on its own, and therefore things are seen not for what they mean only, but for their true orientation in relationship to life. Pure observation changes nothing, and that's its beauty, because the essence of observation is that it doesn't push or pry or poke or conjole or persuade or pressure. It's like the light coming from these overhead lamps 
Feel the light on your skin, on your clothing. Do you feel any persuasion or push? Do you feel any pressure or weight from that light source at all? It's clean. All it's doing, it's doing one thing. It's revealing. So too, bare attention, just observation, just seeing, reveals and does nothing else. That is why it is such a hard practice. It is so difficult for us, and I understand this difficulty for, for a long time. I just couldn't understand why, how observation could do anything. And it doesn't do anything. And I couldn't feel that doing anything, not, for something not to do something, would, could be worth anything. If it wasn't doing anything, how could it be worth anything? Huh? You ever get that? What, what, what is it? J- just seeing. What is that? So what? So I see. So what? You see? And yet it does everything. It does everything. Fundamentally, it makes the unconscious conscious. It reveals what we have taken to be fact, to be fiction. What you believe in is mostly fiction. And if you and I operate and react from fiction, we confirm the belief we hold about it, but not its truth. What shows us its truth is observation. And we are in the business, most of us, as individual human beings, of not caring too much about what is true but reacting almost continuously from the fiction because it's unobserved. Unobserved. So one of the ways to frame awakening is that we're making the unconscious conscious. We are lighting the lamp of our attention to see the whole range of mind within us so that nothing is taken as an assumption and everything is seen for what it is. And that way we have to take this attention, the light, and shine it throughout the corridor of our mind and body to thoroughly understand what this thing is, to light up the whole working of the mind so that we understand it completely and are never again reactive and therefore, and thereby I mean fearful of, because that's what reaction is, afraid of, anything within the mind. That is the value of observation. It makes 
what we have taken perhaps up until this time as being harmful, when we see it, it becomes harmless. Observation, bare attention, does one other thing. It connects us. You can feel when you're observant, when you're aware that you're connected. You begin to feel the textures of life. You begin to feel the textures of whatever sense door you're attending to. And so life is, the texture of life is being felt. And therefore, it awakens the quality of sensitivity within us. The quality of the heart's response is awakened through observation, through connecting. And so you begin to see the connection between observation and the awakening of the heart, the awakening of sensitivity, of a closeness to life that allows life to affect us with an A, not an E. To feel the ongoing relationship to it. Now there's a third word. Relax, observe, and the third is to allow. Allowance is interesting. Uh, I had a friend who was a pretty um, experienced Dharma student. And she came over for a uh, one-on-one meeting, interview. And she said to me, she said, you know, I'm I'm in a terrible relationship with my mother. It's been a kind of abusive relationship for my whole life. And all these years in Dharma, I'm hearing you say, Allow things to be the way they are. And I keep trying to allow my relationship to my mother to be the way it is. And it just keeps getting more and more abused. And I said, that's not, that's not it at all. And it was like a course correction, very important course correction. Seeing things the way they are is very different from allowing things to be the way they are. You see the things the way they are. You see your mother being the way she is, and you realize you're not going to have much influence in being able to change your mother or your father or your aunt, your uncle. Put in whatever person you would like. But that doesn't mean your relationship has to stay the way it is. You don't have to allow the relationship to be abusive. The seeing your mother the way it is and the caring about yourself for what you are, you see in that that I'm, I have to pull myself out of this. Action comes from the seeing, from the awareness. And the allowing is the seeing that you're not going to change your mother and that you care deeply about yourself and that this relationship is not working. So it's not staying in an unhealthy relationship if that's what you're taking Dharma practice to being. And I hear this all the time. This is something to practice with. This is something to practice. I have something to practice. But mostly what they're not doing is taking what they're seeing and putting it into really 
wise action. They're staying within the relationship, an unhealthy relationship to something. This is something to practice with. It's something to see and then take appropriate action. So allowance is not giving yourself away. And so the near, but the near enemy of allowance, especially uh, for those of us who have had a history of losing our boundaries, is that loss of boundaries, of giving yourself away before you understand what you're releasing. Allowance is really love, is appreciation, is caring. And that caring won't allow harm to oneself or to others. And staying in an abusive relationship is harmful. And so allowance has nothing to do with the continual way we maltreat ourselves, mistreat ourselves. But allowance has this range, has this open-armed embrace, a place for everything within our inward experience. When we see what it is that's operating within us, when we have begun to observe, observation itself must be tinged with a kind of caring or an allowance within it. There has to be an allowance, an orientation that doesn't struggle with what we see. That's opinionated observation. What we do is we just openingly embrace what it is that arises. And there comes a sense, although often slowly, of a sense of self-kindness, that you have a growing sense of self-respect and appreciation for yourself. And that the things that you have long since disliked aren't so bad. Annoying sometimes, and often they get come from confusion. But when examined, they're not so bad. And they don't need a lot of worry and tension associated with them. Perhaps a little more awareness to this behavior or that behavior. But there's really nothing within us that requires uh, us to be upset. There's a kind of way that each of these words, relaxation, relaxing, allowing, observing, feed upon one another. When we open to observation, when we open to the ability to just pay attention to ourselves without opinionating or pressuring ourselves from that observation, then we are, in a sense, allowing ourselves or allowing that experience to be just what it is. There's nothing wrong with you. That's another way of saying this. I hope that's a message of hope and not of despair. Oh, he doesn't know me. If he, I'll have to hide that from him in the interview. From the level of your story, from the content of your life, there's a lot wrong with you. You aren't very good at that and you're better at that. You aren't as good as that and you are judged by that. The story is filled with that kind of thing, isn't it? But from the level of observation, of quietude, where thought is seen just as thought, 
there really isn't anything wrong. What needs to change? It's the content that creates its opposite. But stillness has no opposite. Observation has no opposite. Allowance has no opposite. Because it's not pitted against anything. It's not in contention with anything. There isn't a thought of an expectation that is antagonistic to what is that's being displayed. And so it's just what's being displayed. And in that observation, there is just that. And since there's no reaction to what we observe, there's no need to change what's observed. And when there's no need to change what's observed, there's relaxation and rest. You see, it's very simple. This is like the secret teaching. Don't tell the next Tibetan monk. (laughs) And it's precious in that simplicity. Notice also that relaxing observing, and allowing are all verbs. None of those words are nouns. And everything that those words touch changes nouns into verbs. Watch when you start observing if anything stays the same you'll notice that nothing stays the same from observation. And therefore, you begin to see that all of life is a verb, that there are no nouns. And that movement, the fact that everything is in movement, is the salvation. There would be no hope if there was one noun in life. It would be hopeless. But the fact that everything is a verb... Everything is in movement, makes everything transcendent because it's moving beyond itself at all times. And these words, relaxing, observing, allowing, allow the metamorphosis of nouns into verbs when we apply them. Where is it moving? Where is it moving? If it's moving, where is it moving? That's not for us to know. Where it moves, or how you will manifest, and what will come next, requires faith, requires the willingness to abide in the movement without looking ahead in some kind of, you know, scout approach to life. Watching is enough. Observation, relaxing, just being. Begin to feel your practice 
the influence of these words on your practice. When you aren't resisting, when you call forth this need, okay, let me just relax with this. Whatever it is, an emotion, let me just relax with it. Let me not resist it. The resistance is trying to make a barricade between you and that thing. Because you're afraid it's going to imply something about you, and you're afraid that it's going to last. But join what it is that you see with the verb of your life. So that let, let it become alive. Let it become fluid. Let it become movement itself through the willingness not to resist it and your willingness to open to it and allow it to be just what it is. So there is essentially no distance between you and that thing. And since it's all passing through, nothing needs to be justified. Nothing needs to be blamed. Everything can call us to rest. Everything can call us to easement rather than discouragement. These words can orient our practice if we call upon them if we use them. And whatever the practice manifests, however difficult it becomes, they are really the words of transcendence and therefore the words of faith. The words of receptivity, the words of learning. And Words that hold in their essence simplicity. May we all relax, observe, and allow. Can we sit for a minute or two? And as we sit, how do you sit? Do you want to make it complicated? You can. Just start thinking about it. Do you know the difference between thinking about something and the observation of it? And do you have faith in the observation that it is enough? Or do you have to complicate the observation with your thought to justify why it's even arising? These are the issues that face us this weekend. 